Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Forensic investigators have been using DNA in legal cases for a long time, and as the technology has gotten better, they're using genetic material from smaller and more challenging samples. Enter a software called TrueAllele, which can help narrow down genetic profiles even if DNA samples are muddied or too tiny. The only problem with it is, is that nobody knows exactly how it works. The process has been kept hidden as trade secrets until now. For more on this, we'll speak to Justin Juvenal, Justice Reporter at The Washington Post. DNA evidence has really been evolving over the last decade. Um, Everyone knows the traditional DNA match from crime dramas where they find a suspect's DNA at the crime scene, either in semen or blood, as you mentioned, and that's compared um, in a lab to uh, a sample from the suspect and uh, comes back with a match. And that is been for years the gold standard of evidence in criminal trials, and it still is. Um, But as you mentioned, uh, DNA evidence is changing significantly. They're able to pull very small samples now from crime scenes down to just a handful of cells. For instance, when somebody touches the barrel of a gun or steering wheel, they can now swab those and uh, pull out uh, a DNA profile from from a, a small number of cells. But that presents a number of challenges. One is that the DNA is often degraded or often commonly mixed with multiple people's DNA because a lot of people have touched a number of surfaces. So what this software does, this software is transforming the analysis of these complicated uh, DNA mixtures where multiple people have been found uh, in a sample. And what it promises to do is unmix a mixture of samples and look at that jumble of DNA from multiple people and try to sort out who is in that sample. And it basically has allowed prosecutors and police to uh, interpret DNA samples that were previously unreadable. So it's a real breakthrough. But um, the software itself is made by a private company that has spent uh, more than a decade developing it, spent millions of dollars, and they're arguing in court, they don't have to reveal how it works. They don't have to show people the source code because it's a trade secret. And if they revealed it, uh, they would lose their business advantage. And on the other side, defendants are arguing, well, how do we know that this works the way you say it works without actually seeing the inner workings, seeing the guts of the system? And as defendants and the U.S. criminal justice system, we have a right under the Constitution to examine the evidence against us. And uh, these arguments have been going on in court for a number of years now. And generally speaking, judges have sided with Cybergenetics, the maker of True Allele, and said the company does not have to reveal its source code. But uh, in this Virginia case, uh, the defendant has uh, successfully argued to a judge that he should a he should get a look at the source code and allow a defense expert who's uh, has expertise in software and genetics and statistics to take a look at the source code and see if there's any errors in it that could throw it off. Um, right. 
And that's significant because number of forensic techniques in recent years have shown to be have been shown to be flawed from uh, everything from hair analysis to fiber analysis to bite matching. And they've resulted in a number of, uh, you know, um, false convictions and defendants in these cases that are involving truly will say we should have the right to to look at this evidence and examine it and maybe we'll find some errors in it that have been overlooked it's a complicated software system with 170,000 lines of code with all software that there's errors in it that are throwing off the results tell us a little bit more about the case in particular as you mentioned uh, this happened in Virginia it was a gas station robbery, basically, and one of the perpetrators grabbed the victim, told him to get down on the floor. So that's where they got the DNA from when he grabbed the victim's shirt, basically. But there was multiple people's DNA on that shirt, and then this is where they used the True Allele software to kind of pinpoint who that might have been. It's kind of a, it's a pretty garden variety case. That it's, it's, it is a gas station robbery. Two guys come in uh, armed with a gun and uh, put it to the clerk's head in the in the gas station and take about four hundred seventy five dollars. The clerk himself did not get a good view of, of the robbers. Uh, there's surveillance video of the thing, but you can't really see the faces. It's kind of hard to identify them. So uh, about five years after this robbery occurred in 2014. The federal convict uh, in the case identified this uh, man as his co-conspirator in the robbery, and uh, the federal convict was seeking a 30-year reduction on his sentence. Um, So it didn't make it the strongest identification because the convict may have had a a reason to identify the guy, uh, motivated reasoning. So prosecutors uh, decided to uh, use this true allele technology to try to bolster their case. And the true allele uh, software identified the same man that the federal convict identified as his DNA being present on the clerk of the Exxon station, on the shirt of the clerk at the Exxon station. So um, at that point, authorities charged him and the case rests on the identity, uh, the identification by this federal convict and on the true allele evidence. Yeah. And so this is pretty interesting because this could have some pretty big ramifications if they find something wrong in the analysis. Let's say cybergenetics has been directly working on nearly a thousand cases. They've leased this software to 10 crime labs. There's been courts that have deemed the software admissible. So they're using it and they're getting convictions with all of this stuff. So if they get get through, look at the source code, this could change a lot of things, uh, you know, one way or the other. It could either kind of cement it that uh, this is a a really good software or it can change things if they find any mistakes in there. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a a unique case in that we're going to finally get a, what what appears to be, we're going to finally get a look at the source code and how it works and how it figures out which uh, DNA profiles are in these jumbled samples. So it's kind of unique. And it's also interesting because Uh, The case sort of touches on the future of evidence in criminal trials. More and more evidence is being produced by complicated software that relies on algorithms to do various calculations on pieces of evidence. And uh, a lot of this stuff is a lot of the software is created by private companies who, uh, uh, you know, could make similar arguments to what cybergenetics is making that the software itself is 
is, uh, you know, should be a trade secret. So this, th- these kind of issues are going to be coming up more and more in criminal cases going forward in the future. Well, it still might take a little time before they get a chance to look at that source code. So we'll monitor this and see what happens of it. As, as you've just been alluding to, you know, this could change a lot of things. Justin Juvenal, justice reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Finally, for this week, there's a harsh reality for many that work as customer service agents. Many big companies often use contractors that have agents working from home to help you when you have a problem. And unfortunately, they're often caught in the middle between abusive callers and corporate mandates to make customers feel better, with unspoken rules of never hanging up on a customer. For more on how bad it can be for some customer service agents, we'll speak to Ariana Tobin, reporter at ProPublica. So these customer service reps are mostly women, and they're mostly women who needed to work from home long before the pandemic. So a lot of these people, they need to be near children. They have caretaking responsibilities for older family members or sick family members. Some of the people I talked to lived in rural areas where it was really difficult to get to places where they could find an office job. And a lot of these are people usually, I mean, these for, in, for the most part, are not high-paying jobs. And so they're people who needed work. And this was the kind of work that was most suited to them. We talked to a number of people with disabilities, you know, ranging from like physical disabilities to mental health issues, where it was just very difficult for them to go to an office in person. So the short version of this story is there are people who really needed the work and who, when they found an opportunity to work from home, fielding halls from their house really felt like it was a godsend. And that's so important to stress because a lot of people will say, well, you hate your job or you don't like the conditions. Why don't you just quit? You know, not everybody's in that position. Some people get onto something and they want to keep it and they need the money, right? So that's why, you know, once we get into some of these pretty harrowing stories, that's why these people stayed and dealt with how bad it is. And, you know, so this, a lot of times these customer service reps are caught in the middle, obviously on the side of the consumer A lot of times we're already calling with a problem, so we might be a little angry already. And then they have to uh, balance the needs of the company themselves. Across the board, it seems like uh, whether it's a written rule or not, they tell you do not hang up on a customer. You have to listen listen to them, you know, speak their piece basically on it. So if you think about it from the perspective of the company, customer service is really important, right? It's one of the only times when you as a customer are probably directly going to be talking to someone who, you know, for all intents and purposes, you assume is literally representing their brand. So to many of these companies, their brand is extremely important. They want you to walk away feeling like you've had a problem resolved. Yes, as you said, these are people who, if you're calling with an issue, it means you have an issue. So you're probably pretty angry. <laughs> and so to make sure that that happens and to make sure that they feel like the customer service representatives are presenting them in the best way, they need to maintain pretty strict control. And a lot of what we found in our report reporting was that it gets really, really, really specific. So for some of these companies, they're really monitoring down to the number of seconds that 
the call goes silent. It's a metric called no talking time, where it's like down, I think, in one case to the seventh decimal point. Wow. Just making sure that the agent is, you know, it's, it's like a quality control mechanism for them. But when you're looking at these as performance metrics or something that's grading how well the customer service agent is living up to what the company expects, it can be really rigid, really strict and really scary. Okay, so let's get into some examples because some of these are pretty amazing. And as we mentioned, you spoke to a ton of different people, and these are just some really representative examples of what a lot of them go through. And we'll start off with your first example, someone named Christine Stewart. She was taking calls and chats for Intuit and TurboTax. And this kind of illustrates the strict monitoring and threats to be fired. You know, if you call out or something right away, they're telling you, well, you might be fired. And some of the other strict stuff, no outside noise. This is kind of her experience. Yeah, Christine, she worked for TurboTax. And I think the most striking part of her story to me, she was also a mom. And she specifically wanted this job because she had two kids at home and she just needed to be there to get them on the bus every day. And she said it took five minutes, but it was really problematic to be taking that kind of five minute break. And one day her son comes home and he's like knocking on the door because he's broken his wrist. And she feels so much pressure to, you know, not call in sick, not call in for an emergency that she like really um, has to go to great lengths to try to convince everyone that she can't work because her Internet is out. And so she really just feels like she's has this job specifically because she wants to be home with her kids. Her son breaks his wrist and she feels like she can't take care of him. So. I should say it's important to know that in all of this reporting, we also went to the companies and we went to both the company who these agents are taking calls for and the contractors who they, for the most part, work for. Um, And I say for the most part, because there's a bunch of different employment models here. And most of them said that they don't have a no hang up policy. But what, from what we understood from talking to a number of agents is that even if there's no written policy, it seems to be the understanding among agents, among trainers, and among the people who are actually doing these jobs. Like, it's really Definitely. the lived reality. You know, you guys went through a, a lot of ways to verify a lot of these details where you could. Facebook screenshots, email exchanges, a lot of different things that these people would share with you just to kind of verify their stories. So that's pretty bad. Uh, one of the other running themes, obviously, is the verbal abuse, too. Obviously, as we mentioned, people are calling in with problems. They get if they feel like they're not getting helped, you know, they can get pretty testy and and the verbal abuse comes. You talked about an agent who was taking calls for Bath and Body Works and she was getting it from a lot of customers or a lot of consumers. So her work with Bath and Body Works, she was very limited in what she was able to kind of do on some of these customers behalf. And they would be, say, running a promotion like you can get two lotions for the price of one. And she had to stick really closely to whatever the policy said. And when she would repeat that, when she would say that a lot of customers, um, she told us, would basically scream at her. And, you know, it's like their frustration with the company ended up coming out as their frustration to her, of her. Yeah. And, and as I mentioned, you know, the verbal abuse can get pretty bad. Uh, you know, the, it can get, you know, until racial epithets, all sorts of stuff that they have to deal with. And, you know, as we keep kind of reiterating, there, there's this unspoken no hang up rule. So you just have to kind of take it until they either put her out or, or something. One of the other interesting things is, uh, 
an agent that was taking calls for Home Depot. And I guess in that one, as you mentioned, there's different business models. They had to absorb some startup costs even, uh, you know, whatever, buying your computer, buying some equipment just so you can start that job. Yes. So this agent was taking calls through a contractor called Arise Virtual Solutions. And what Arise Virtual Solutions has done is they've basically taken the gig economy model like you'd see in Uber or Lyft where they pretty much frame it as like you are your own boss, you have your own company, but we'll let you use our platform to be able to take customer service calls. So that all sounds quite complicated right. and it it is, but in reality what it boils down to is that an agent who signs up to be an Arise agent pays for all of their own training, they pay for all of their own equipment, they have a platform fee deducted from every paycheck. And while there are some agents who manage to make money out of this, we've actually talked to quite a few Arise agents who actually lost money on the deal or significant (laughs) chunks of their paycheck to the point where they were making below minimum wage. Yeah, some spent as much as $1,000 on training and equipment. And I mean, for somebody that needs a job, you know, you're hoping that it pays off in the long run. But That's a pretty high number just coming in, you know, just to start. That's pretty tough. Yes. And I mean, again, from the perspective of the companies here, if the agents are the one picking up those costs, like paying for training, paying for equipment, that means the company doesn't have to pay for those things. It also means they don't have to pay for normal employment costs like benefits. So they don't have to field health insurance costs. They don't have to pay for payroll taxes. It's cheaper for both Arise, the contractor, which lets them in turn offer a lower premium to the brands they're trying to get to hire them. Yeah. And that's what's happening in a lot of these cases. The big brands, you know, the big companies that you're going to with a problem, you know, well, they have these contractors that they use where they set up the customer service reps. And that's that's what the business model is in a lot of cases. As you mentioned, you reached out to a lot of these companies to get their response on, you know, what some of their employees had been saying. Overall, what are they saying about some of these pretty harsh conditions that we hear about? So most of the contractors say they want the working experience to be good for the agents. They say, you know, we're trying our best. Most of the companies who are fielding these calls say, you know, something pretty similar. A couple of them say, look, we're not the employers here. It's on the contractor. Like, you know, it's their responsibility, not ours, which, of course, makes them say, we're not responsible for these things. A number of the companies didn't get back to us, including Sykes, the company that Christine Stewart, the agent we were talking about before with the son who broke his wrist, they didn't get back to us. They didn't provide any sort of comment. And a few of the other companies we name and the other brands, they didn't give us any comment. Wow. Well, I mean, it's just an interesting story. There's a lot of examples here. I suggest everybody go and check out Ariana's piece on this because There's some pretty interesting stuff, things that kind of piss you off when you hear about it, too. So and, you know, I guess if you're calling in with a complaint somewhere, take a deep breath before you interact with people. Ariana Tobin, reporter at ProPublica. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Please be kind to your customer service agents. They're trying. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.